Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books in uh, New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dana Mills, who is in Oxford in the United Kingdom at the moment. So this is my first transatlantic podcast. Dana is here to speak with us about her new book, Dance and Politics, Moving Beyond Boundaries from Manchester University Press, but I believe that Oxford University Press is distributing it in the United States. Indeed, yeah. Dana has been a fellow at the Center for Ballet and the Arts at New York University and a visiting scholar at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College, also in New York. Dana Mills's book, Dance and Politics, is not necessarily the usual topic for our conversations on the New Books in Political Science podcast. But the book asks us to consider dance from a number of perspectives and within the framework of contemporary political theory. Not only has dance always been with us as humans, as Mills argues, that dance as a language or means of communication must be considered from the dancer's perspective, but also from the audience or the receiver's experience and understanding. Our very contemporary conversations in the United States and in other countries about the body itself, the racialized body, the sexualized body, the disabled or abled body, can potentially benefit from Dr. Mills's work on dance and politics and the way that the body is consumed in a political context. But I will let her explain this a bit more. But my first question, I would like to ask Dr. Dana Mills to tell us a little about herself and how she came to this particular project on dance and politics. Oh, okay, thank you so much for having me. So um, I am a dual national. I'm half Israeli, half Welsh, which I know is a combination you don't get a lot. Um, I was raised in Israel and joined the peace and human rights movements when I was 14 after the assassination of um, Prime Minister Rabin. And I've been active politically ever since in the Israeli and international left. And in addition to that, I've always loved to dance like many other girls and boys. I've started dancing when I was four and I never really stopped. And growing up and living in Israel and Palestine, sort of working in Israel and Palestine for me and my friends and colleagues and mentors, dance has always been political. It's something that has been inseparable from our political lives, maybe because everything is pretty much political in that region. Um, Yeah. And I went on to doing a BA and a master's in political science in Tel Aviv University. And then I kind of wanted a few years to figure out what I want to do with myself. And I went to work professionally in dance because it was something I always did and was always passionate about. And sort of started thinking more seriously about the intersection between two sides of my life I was really passionate about and sort of couldn't imagine myself living without. And then I did this thing which master students do and we all tell them not to do, which is I try to write a thesis about the case study without having a core text. So I wrote about the politicization of dance in Israel in the 40s and 50s in its founding moment. And then I realized I had no proper core text to depend on. So I had a case study, but with no infrastructure. Um, 
And I thought maybe someone should write that core text and maybe that someone can be me because I'm coming from living in both those worlds. Um, so I went on to apply for a PhD in Oxford and got in. And here I am about 10 years later, still living with the project, which is very much my life still. I'm still very active in the international left. I've traveled a lot quite um, as your introduction shows. Um, and I still dance. It's something that I cannot imagine myself living without. So that is the short drift of how the book became out of two theses um, kind of project that is very much the infrastructure of my life. So you're not only providing the core text on understanding dance and politics, but you're also providing the theoretical framework for us, I believe. Yes, yes, that's what I try to do. And so my next question for you is you pose the central question of your work early on in the book. Mm. How can we expand our notion of what is political so that it includes dance? Yeah. Um, and so can you explain to us a bit about, you know, you, you've talked about how you personally came to it, mm. but as somebody who studies political theory and who yeah. studies performance, yeah. um, but usually with words like theater or television or film, um, an, an dance is a different sort of expression. So yeah. please elaborate so on that. I'll elaborate. So a few challenges which became sort of the exciting, motivating forces for various these various projects that came together in the book um, were, first of all, the question of omission, which is a very central question in my work broadly, which is why don't we think of certain things and certain people as political, whereas for many other people, they clearly are. So the two examples I started from were Isidore Duncan and Martha Graham. And the reason why I started from them was simply because there is very there are very few people in the dance world who cannot think of them in any other in any specific context of their training and life. So they're kind of people who are always there. It kind of feels like they're always present, whether in your dressing room or on stage, kind of hovering above in some kind of influence or inspiration. And what I learned studying dance and politics early on was that not many of my political theorists colleagues knew a lot about them and I was quite surprised and shocked at them at that um, and also the kind of responses I got when I said I was working on Duncan or Graham were very different to the responses I would have got and I tried that as kind of a social experiment if I was doing you know a thesis on Beethoven or if I was working on Van Gogh who are not necessarily uh, using words either so I think that a few interesting things about dance which is which are as you said introduction first of all the use of the body and the use of the female body and the use as the not this of the not necessarily straight body, which is still very threatening to our world in political theory and to our world in politics. Indeed, in 2017, very sadly, as we are realizing now. And, you know, I can sort of I can one day I'll write a different book about the reception of my work, which was sort of intertwined in sexist jokes and many sort of ill, Ill devised statements about what many people around me thought dance is. And then I kind of came with several examples of these women's lives and intersections and how they influence people in their time, which usually effectively shut up that critique. But then I sort of started thinking more broadly, why do we not think of them as political? What is in what is it in dance that people still find threatening? And that kind of became the core of the argument, which is the kind of contradiction between wanting to write about the body and dance and something that is really hard to capture in words, and then putting it into a text, which is obviously kind of challenging, and but also exciting. 
So that was kind of the core of the theoretical argument. So thinking about remittance and thinking about writing about the uncapturable. Um, and that led me to sort of working in... I, so I tried to write the argument. So I really um, aimed to write it not just as a disembodied text, but actually as a text that dances. So the book is written as a choreographic note or text where people exit and in, enter the text and there are limelights that shift and you feel that you're both an audience member and a reader, which I think is a very big shift from usually how we engage political texts in which we're very disembodied, we're very disengaged and we're not allowed to feel very much. I think that's one thing that I was constantly sort of challenged is why feeling in political theory is kind of still, you know, in many circles still something that we frown upon and, you know, works such as David Fanagia's work, which has been really influential on mine, sort of thinking about emotions, but also, you know, a kind of disdain for emotions that we still have to handle. So I'm kind of trying to do that in the actual writing of the text rather than just in the argument itself. Um, yeah. One of the points that you make also later in the in the introduction, but also sort of wrapping up the whole book, it's you note mm. you note that it's a feminist text. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that you just articulated is the fact that as political theorists or as individuals who study sort of concept, concepts um, mm. and and sort of understanding politics in a theoretical framework, it's often the quote rational perspective. Yeah. And so I, I would love for you to sort of explain a little bit more about the text itself, as you note, the way that you wrote it, which mm. is to integrate in a certain sense, kinds of emotions that we don't usually see in a political theory text, um, but also connected to, as you've noted throughout the entire book, sort of the feminist perspective. So there's there are two sides, I think, to this for me. Um, first of all, it's a feminist text, not only by focusing on women, because I started with Isadora Duncan and Martha Graham, but they are both white and they both come from the West broadly construed, although Duncan is a bit different because she did go to Soviet Russia and work there. And she did sort of engage different sides of the world um, and understood her position, I think, a bit differently to Graham. But they were both kind of an example of what we see as the West. Um, so I do write about other case studies such as South Africa, such as Palestine. Um, I engage questions of cultural appropriation because I think for me, feminism is always not just talking about women, but talking about voices that are not usually heard in the canon. And I think, you know, if you started by talking about 2017 politics more broadly, if, you know, one thing we've learned from both the Hillary campaign and May being prime minister here in the UK is that it's not enough to push a woman as a feminist statement. We need something more robust and, and profound as, you know, a vehicle for change. Um, so, it's, I, you know, I wrote the book, obviously, a few years ago, but it's becoming very apparent now in public discourse. So one thing is sort of listening to voices that are not usually heard. Um, but as you said, the kind of positioning of the body as central in the text, rather than the disembodied argument, hypothetical sort of um, thought processes um, and writing the book, obviously, in Oxford, which is the kind of shrine for Rawlsians from all over the world has been interesting because I was sort of all my wonderful colleagues who I really admire and appreciate were kind of spending their days and hypothesizing of what if, you know, and I was sort of trying to really engage people who dance and people who live and express themselves through the body. And that that was kind of a push again against a certain theoretical trend 
and I know there's sort of different other theoretical trains that engage the material in the body in different ways. Um, and But I think I'm sort of doing my own thing and sort of positioning myself against various other schools um, rather than sort of just joining one of them. Um, so it's a kind of double gesture, if you will. And it's a double gesture, not only being feminist in terms of the female, but also mm. in terms of the sort of marginalized and yeah, exactly. and, and sort of uh, moved aside voices of many yeah. different peoples. Yeah. Um, and so you do talk about this question of why has dance not been understood to be or considered a legitimate way to articulate one's political self, which I think yeah. goes to the heart of so much of what you're talking about in the book. So can mm. you talk a little bit about why dance hasn't been considered a legitimate sort of articulation of a political self and to a degree why you see it as okay, yeah. a political, an expression or articulation of a political self? So I think as many questions of omittance, which, as I say, is like is the driving force of my work more broadly, um, you can find blame in both sides of the conversation, not really engaging with each other. I think there is an issue with dance as a performance and dance studies as an academic field being quite enclosed and inward looking and, you know, talking to people in the dance world. It was very interesting to see how different people reacted to the project and some people were like, why are you trying to do that? Why are you trying to convince, you know, who cares if political theorists think we're whether we're political or not? And some people were really open to conversation. Um, dance studies is a very um, technically heavy field in which many practitioners who engaged works every day, dance works every day, cannot understand texts that are written about them. And as a theorist who's interested in equality, I find that deeply disturbing. So my text was also a bit subversive against that field. And I wrote it hoping, and really, I have to say, I'm really joyful that many practitioners have read the book and engaged with it in the, worlds of dan in the world of dance as well. Um, so I think there is a question of over-technicality of the dance world, which, you know, many sub areas of academic work sort of suffer from um but on the other hand and you know I, I trained as a political theorist and that's my first and foremost world i think people are still really scared of the body and people are scared of things that they cannot necessarily narrate and it's been really interesting again you know once you get through the first stage of why are you doing this and why are you so interested in these people especially when i started with graham and duncan and so i usually start them as a conversation starter because you know, People will maybe have heard of them. Isadora and the Scarf at least kind of gets people talking. Um, I always wear scarves when I do Isadora books, by the way. It's a great way to sort of perform your work. But um, once you get over that stage, you will find that most, even the most severe unengaged with the body theorists or indeed political um, activists or, or politicians I, I got to know say, oh, you know, there was one work I saw when I was like, 20 something and I dated this girl and he took me to Soy Ballet and it was amazing. Have you heard of being about? And then I kind of laughed at myself. And I think, you know, there's always the one person who you engage and you don't think about them. And then they, you kind of realize that they did really influence you and you, they changed something in your perception. So that, that was kind of the dual omission that I started from. 
And, and I mean, I, I think that this is, is fascinating because most of us have, in fact, seen performance mm. of dance. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not like sitting down and watching a television show and analyzing the sort of gender politics mm. on The Good Wife or something to that effect. It's just like, mm. oh, it's a ballet. I've seen yeah. Peter and the Wolf. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but that what you are talking about is not only that the performance, the dancers themselves, but a lot of what the book is focusing on is the experience of yeah. seeing the dance and what does that mm. do to me as a consumer or as yeah. the audience. Can you explain a little bit about that interaction? Because I think that's a big part of your thesis too. Yes. Yeah, so I think one thing that I'm really trying to bring to the forefront, and I think both in dance studies and political theory, is the question of reception and conditions of reception. Because, you know, the fact that someone devises a dance wherever it is in their studio, in, you know, their little flat or in the field somewhere, Isadora Duncan loved to dance on the beach, um, doesn't mean that they will be received or consumed as such. And I think many of the issues we're dealing with now globally in politics um, such as, again, cultural appropriation and inequality and consumption come from the dis this discrepancy between how someone imagines their work and how that actually comes across. Um, and, I, you know, one example that I worked on was the One Billion Rising movement, in which I was actually involved as an activist, where it was really sort of well-intended. It's a um, project that started with Eve Ensler doing a flash mob against violence against women, uh, which, you know, seems a fairly uncontroversially positive idea, but it kind of starts as a very New York-centered um, choreography taught online. And, you know, the video features Debbie Allen, who for kids of the 80s like myself is the quintessential dance teacher Lydia Grant from Frame, <laughs> for whom I'm indebted in owning too many chiffon skirts. <laughs> and... Um, this, you know, I watched the video and I thought, you know, this is great, but this is everything I grew up on, you know, in the Western side of my education. And then I started going online and seeing how people responded to that flash mob and realized that many people just took it to their own, you know, form of um, understanding. And my favorite, so the way she, she talks about the flash mob, she says, you know, dance is explosive and it's rapturous and it's wonderfully celebratory. It's not violent. And I thought, you know, there's someone who engages dances, dance on a day-to-day -day basis. It can be that, but it can be also a lot of many dark things. And then I think the great example of subversion in reception, I think I found was a, a communist flash mob in which women who are sort of masked and you don't see their face throughout the video hold guns and fire them in the air and that is part of the one billion rising flash mob so you know i think if eve ensler was that she probably would be not be as pleased as one would expect um but again i think the kind of idea that if you start a flash mob on the upper west side everyone around the world will take it will take it in your intention is not only naive but really harmful and again, coming from Israel-Palestine and seeing how sometimes the liberal left might think they're doing really well-intentional sort of ideas, um, projects, whatever, but that is actually quite oppressive and just reproduces conditions of inequality from which it originated. Um, that was one of the driving forces of the book. So I kind of go, I walk the, the, the line between the intention of the author and how that was subverted sometimes in reception, which I think is a really interesting thing that, again, we don't usually engage in political theory, and I think we really should. So there's, it's, it's not only that the presentation is to be understood in one way, 
but mm. how it may be taken in many ways. I mean, we have this controversy right now in the United States with this presentation oh, of, yeah. of um, Julius Caesar in yeah, New yeah, York yeah. with the sort of interpretation of Trump as Caesar. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, it's a Shakespeare play from 400 years ago. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, again, it's a question of the contemporary subversion of understandings exactly, um, yeah. and overlays. But the, the world of dance is one where you also do not have the words, you only have exactly. the expression. Yeah. Um, and, and how does that become consumed in different places, as, as you mm. note, particularly in the one billion um, chapter? Uh, yeah. which I thought was really interesting. Um, you also explained that you are exploring dance in, to some degree, a global political context, as we've already mm. been discussing it, um, and that your analysis is done within a political theory framework um, that moves far beyond the, quote, known world mm. in political theory, as you explain. Yeah. Can you elaborate on what you mean by this and why it is significant for your analysis of the political understanding of dance? So... I, I started with two women who seemed to me too overbearing in the world of dance. And indeed, my dance theorist colleague said, why are you writing on Duncan and Graham? We've had so many books on them anyway. They're too well, too overdone anyway. And then I realized that none of my political theorist colleagues knew of them. So that was the beginning of that contradiction. But then I kind of thought more broadly, what do we know? What do we think of as political in the world of political theory? So, you know, I started from a kind of impossible point where someone who was too central and too, you know, um, overworked in one side of my life was considered really radical on the other side. But it was clear to me from the get-go that I'm not just going to write about two white women in the West, because that's, again, reproducing certain inequalities that we are aware that um, constitute our lives on a daily basis. So the question of what we know and who we think of as political and who we think of as equal conversation partners, that's another thing that I was interested in. Why do we, so to speak, talk to some people and then don't to other, talk to other people? Um, was one of the driving forces of the book. And again, the question of um, what is known and what can be reproduced in words. So there's one wonderful quote that kind of guides me throughout my, my work, and it's really inspirational, inspirational for me generally, which is um, Martha Graham, who said, the body says what words cannot, which I think is something that anyone who engages any kind of embodied performance can really testify to, that there is something visceral that you don't necessarily have words to describe. And yet, if you do want to, to think about that power, how do you work on it? How do you make it known? How do you make it engageable for people who don't necessarily share the same world, the same training? So this kind of contradiction and this, the question of what is known in the world of political theory and why so little about dance is known in, in the world of political theory um, was the beginning of the conversation for me. And and you 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 specifically push you say the boundaries beyond what we generally think about in sort of Western political theory the the usual players as you will yeah um, but who are some of the theorists that you do engage in the first two couple chapters that sort of frame your argument. Mm. So there's, there's been a huge shift, obviously, in political theory that I'm really indebted to. And I was lucky to be working alongside its development. Um, I've been I've learned a lot from the work of Davide Panagia and Bonnie Honig. Um, also, the work of Jody Dean, who I think really brings sort of left activist thinking into the center of political theory. That's been really important for me as also an activist, as I said in my introduction. 
Um, I have been interested in the new materialism, though I'm afraid I'm still an old materialist at heart. And, um, you know, writing about Isidore Duncan, who goes through Soviet Russia and says to Lenin, I will not accept money for my work. And then brings that into her understanding of dance has been a way for me to consider why I am not a new materialist in the way that some people I've been inspired by in different ways are. Um, I'm really indebted to Hannah Arendt in her um juxtaposition of equality and plurality is something that is really a driving force, both in my activism and in my writing, in the sense that we know that every person is different. And, and there's a great Graham quote again that says, it is because there's only one of you in all times that you have to express yourself. And the question is, why are some people more able to express themselves, whether as dancers or as political voices um, in words and why some people are omitted from of that conversation. Um, so again, that's that juxtaposition has been really central for, for the book. And then another theorist I engage is uh, Jacques Anciere, who was sort of central throughout and kind of comes and goes into the stage um, when I fancy him to take a little <laughs> leap in. Um, and I think his concept of dissensus, which I interpreted, reinterpreted as six senses, and I'll explain that in a second, um, has been really interesting for me because, and again, I think that's where his work as well as Jody Dean's has, has been really influential in the sense of bringing left-wing thinking into political theory and thinking about the voices not heard and how they become heard through this moment of intervention. Um, the concept of six senses came out of a kind of playful pun of thinking about um, the sickled foot, which is something that as a dancer from age four, you, you, you learn to do naughty toes and good toes. I think that's kind of an international concept in ballet classes. <laughs> and you learn to hate the sickled foot. But then the two women I started with, who are Duncan and Graham, were the ones who tried to go against that aesthetic and to say everything that has been called ugly, we want to make beautiful. And that question of what is considered ugly and what is considered unacceptable um, which then becomes the center of a different canon, was kind of a way for me to subvert the Rancierian concept of dissensus, which, you know, there's been a lot of writing about his use of the concept and how much it engages the body and how much it doesn't. And I think there is truth in a lot of the critiques that were raised against him in the sense that he writes a lot about embodiment and performance, but actually a lot of the people he writes about and not there physically. So by bringing in the sickle foot, I tried to let them enter the stage a little bit and argue with him. So so that was my kind of foundational moment in, in responding to him. And and I mean, I think you, you, you know, layer in a number of the sort of mm. framework components because yeah. you are looking at dance, not just through sort of a Western traditional lens of ballet, but mm. you also, you know, you, you have a very rich and complex um, sort of array of examples within the book. Mm. You've talked about Isadora Duncan and Martha Graham and a little bit about the One Billion Rising. But, you know, you do have this, you know, this great chapter on the gumboots dance yeah. in South yeah. Africa, which is really overtly political. Um, mm. And then, of course, you have the the dance and human rights chapter that highlights the Israeli and the Palestinian um, two different groups who are dancing. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about, yeah. you know, sort of the particular examples that you bring into the book, ones that you yeah. may have thought about but didn't include, um, yeah. and why? Okay, so um, just a little bit about the examples that you raised. So the gumboots example actually came from 
um, very prominent human rights lawyer I met here at a dinner at Oxford and said to me, my very first case as a starting um, lawyer was representing a gambler's group who were sued for their art. And then I started looking a little bit at this art form. And South Africa, very similarly to my homeland and area I come from, is a place from in which everything is political. You know, if you grew up in South Africa in the 20th century, the overthrowing of the apartheid regime and the creation of, of South Africa as we know it today, there isn't really anything that you can say is not related to race relations, to economic relations, etc. Gambit's dance, just a few words to explain what it is, um, was developed in the gold mines of South Africa in the 19th century when the very poor black miners were given gamboots um, to protect their legs, not because of the huge humanity of their white bosses, but because they worked in really precarious conditions and their bosses just wanted them to live longer so they could work longer. And in these conditions, they were not allowed to speak because the bosses were afraid of subversion. And what happened was that they used these boots and clapping and stomping to develop a kind of movement language. Now, all this sounds, you know, very um, inspiring and empowering and positive, but here here comes the question of the conditions of performance, because what happened was that the white bosses started hearing the black miners, you know, stomp and clap and, and dance and actually thought it was rather good. So after work days of sometimes 14 hours, they would make the miners perform for them. And then obviously something that could have been empowering or, um, emancipatory becomes really oppressive and repressive and actually rearticulates the conditions of inequality from which it arises. Um, in the case of Israel and Palestine, that's really where my thinking started. And, you know, it's my hinterland. And as Aaron says, what remains, it's the mother tongue. And for me, Israeli dance and everything going on in that re- region is my mother tongue. And it's one region where Again, everything is political, but also people engage the conflict in very clandestine ways that might not always be apparent to a dance theorist or to a political activist who come from the outside. So he had a bit of an insider advantage. Um, So in Palestine, I was really interested in the development of Dabke, which is the um, national dance. So obviously in, in a country that is basically trying to become a sovereign country for the past, I don't know, 60 odd years to say that there is a national dance is quite controversial in its own right and to show the kind of connection between the development of dabke and the political events around um the furthering of occupation in palestine the furthering of the israeli occupation in palestine was kind of showing that really you cannot completely oppress people but it's not all joyful and it's not you know dance is not just emancipatory and and you know the kind of comment i usually got on my research was like oh that's so lovely and when you look at on at that example you see that it's really not lovely at all it's a way to express um anger it's a way to sort of live in really harsh conditions and it was actually uh, persecuted by the israeli authorities so you know some of the Dapke dancers ended up in prison and underwent torture and human rights violations um on the other hand, on the Israeli side, and again, this is kind of my own training and where I come from, there have been really brilliant works contesting the conflict from within and sort of talking against a very oppressive government has become even more oppressive since the 2015 election. Um, and sort of bringing to the forefront human rights activism that doesn't always gets that doesn't always get the attention it deserves abroad. So I try to do kind of twofold ex- sort of express that conflict and um, show that there are still voices of dissent that are not being silenced. And I think 
one thing that I found out throughout the research for, for, for these and other chapters is that sometimes the fact that dance is considered a bit, you know, not the center of political engagement is actually an advantage because you can get away with very, you know, radical statements that maybe in a play or in, in a book you wouldn't be able to. So, you know, one of, one of the dance works I wrote about in Israel is a work called Archive by a very talented young choreographer called Arkady Zaydes. What he did was to reenact video footage by the very prominent human rights B'Tselem on stage. And, you know, this is an organization that has been hunted down by government forces since, since especially, as I say, the 2015 election. And yet, as a dance show, it, it, is, it still goes on. And, you know, the video is still on YouTube. You can still look at it. So I think one thing that I found interesting is that, again, the body says what words cannot. Sometimes it's really, really important that the body says what's, what words cannot when words become really censored and politicized. And so on, on some level, then dance is, is a mechanism when you cannot say or write or even perform with words, as you know, mm, yeah. um, sort of subversive political messages. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you conclude the book by talking about um, the performances by the Crow people, yeah. um, which is a Native American um, tribe, and their mm. particular dance. Can you explain why you integrated that particular example as part of your concluding section? So I've been really interested in Jonathan Lear's book, Radical Hope, and especially Bonnie Honig's reading of it. And I think the question of hopefulness and how can we work towards a better future when we can't grasp it yet is something that you know, I engage as an activist and I engage as a theorist. And I think dance gives a very interesting answer to. And his writing on this example, which kind of pushed me to look at it myself, is kind of thinking, what can we learn from the Native American people from whom an option to hope through, through the present has been taken away? And how can they, through action, reconstitute a different world for themselves? So I, I really tried, you know, then trying to write about hope in the conclusion was making the book a bit more positive because I think ending with the Israeli-Palestinian example would kind of sent the reader into despair. And that's without, you know, obviously I finished a while ago and things have been much, much worse. Um, so this is me trying to be optimistic, which doesn't always work. But I do think there's something that to be learned from the kind of Vesisifian world of dances in which you try to make a better world through your action, even if you don't know where this world is. And I can sort of give a small example, which I don't think is prosaic, I thought, I think told me a lot. So a day after them, I was in New York during the American election this year. And a day after um, the election, I was scheduled to give a guest lecture in the Martha Graham School about Martha Graham's reading of Nietzsche in the 30s, which is obviously something that is really exciting on any other day apart from the day after the American <laughs> election. And I came into the school and, you know, we're all talking about very young kids, probably the age of my students here at Oxford and your undergraduates. Um, who all came red-eyed and, you know, were dancing throughout the day. They started their work at 9 a.m. and they came to my, my class at 3 p.m. And I thought there was something really interesting about that because talking to academic colleagues in other fields, they said, no, you know, no one came and people were so depressed and stayed at home and cried and all these things. But there's something about dance in which you really... You, you figure things out through moving. And, you know, I kind of changed my lecture. I said, you know, in a different 
life. Maybe I would talk to you about Martha Graham's reading of Nietzsche in the 30s, but let's talk about how you feel right now. <laughs> and how have you been feeling dancing all today? And they actually said, you know, we're really grateful for this opportunity. And we're really grateful to move and to think through our bodies and to, to you know, to think about empathy through our bodies and to, to interact with each other and to not be alone and not to, you know, to sort of dwell, delve into sadness. Um, and I think that's a really powerful thing that dancers can teach the rest of us because you, you go to class, whatever, you know, even the worst things that happen to you in life, you still go to class and you figure things out um, throughout. My wonderful ballet teacher in New York said, once you put your left hand on the bar, everything becomes better. And I really believe that is true. Um, there's something in, you know, you change things through action. You relate to other people through action and you don't, don't just disengage from the world you actively intervene in it and I think that's something about this discipline that actually dance can teach the rest of us and and you talk about the sort of um duadual sort of nature of the um experiences of dance in your book mm -hmm. and you talk you know we've talked already a lot about the dancer performing and the individual in the audience or the audience as a whole consuming or experiencing that but one of the things that you just sort of brought up in this conversation that you had the day after the election is the relationship mm. of the dancers to each other yeah. um and and how that is yet another sort of relational understanding of dance as political that we don't usually think about. Can you explain yeah. a little bit more about that? Um, I think that's one place where, as a practitioner of dance, I had kind of an insight that was helpful. But also, I think dance studies has to think about more seriously. And, you know, in terms of a feminist text, I think that I also want to ask questions about gender relations in dance more broadly. So, I mean, Isadora Duncan and Martha Graham were quite singular in the sense that there were women who created a field for themselves. But when you think about many relationships in the world of dance, you have the, the great male genius and you have all the unknown female ballerinas who are stars for a while and then disappear from stage when they retire at the great age of 35 or something. And that's one side of power relations that I was interested in exploring. I still sort of actively engage. But I think there is an element of empathy that is a very foundational part of every training process and um it's something that is very unique to to the dance world especially because you can't use words often um that i was very eager to bring to political theory because i think you know if there's one thing we know we need in 2017 is more empathy and i think there's something in the way that you treat other people with respect in on stage and in dance class that can be quite telling to the way we engage political spaces more broadly. And again, sort of I'm thinking of sort of other kinds of work that look at demonstrations, at the Occupy movement, how people engage political spaces, whether that is with respect, whether that is with, you know, how we understand violence versus empathy. Um, and I think there is a learned element in it. You know, we're not, it's not to say all dancers are nice people, really not, you know, really, really not. But you do learn how to, engage other people's bodies and space in a class in a way that could actually be helpful to our life as political agents. So that's one element that I, I, I try to bring in. But again, also to think about power relations, about leader and those who are led and never will get the fame. You know, all of the, the Graham and Duncan dancers who never got to be Graham or Duncan and um, the Gambuts dancers whose name we don't know who and the Dapke dancers who, whose names we don't know, but I think are as interesting and important to me as Graham and Duncan are. So again, the power relations within the world of dance and who we consider 
a star and who we consider not a star are also very interesting and telling. And I, as as somebody who has sort of gone through your book and 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 have the opportunity to ask you this question, which is not excessively sort of tackled in your book, but you do integrate it a bit, is this idea of political space. Mm, yeah. um, and, and I would love for you to talk a little bit more about how dance itself occupies, you know, a political space that we don't usually define as such, which sort of goes back to your thesis. Um, but this broader concept of political space. Yes, I mean, I'm really interested in the question of interventions, and I'm really interested in interventions into space. So, I mean, one example I, I, I looked at was a Graham work that was performed in one of her um, Cold War tours. So she got a lot of money um, to go and perform and to sort of show American superiority. But then she, uh, the work was performed in a half-open space, and Janet Aylber, who's the wonderful current artistic director and was then one of her principals, described a really unique moment in which a lot of people who were standing basically uninvited at the sort of so-called wings became the main audience to which the performance danced, which I think is a really unique example and really interesting. It tells us something about how you can't really restrict space and you can't restrict consumption of performance. Um, I think... Dance is always spatial because the body is a space. It's a space that you learn to organize and to um, work through as a practitioner. But also you work in different spaces. So one reason I also worked on both gambuts and darky dances at the same time is looking at what we would broadly consider dance for theater, like Graham, Duncan, um, other kinds of examples. And then again, flash mobs, which obviously take different spatial um, articulations. So you have flash mobs performed in very, you know, that some of them were performed on the beach. Some of them were performed at the heart of New York City. So the question of what we consider political space, um, gold mines of South Africa, uh, you know, checkpoints of Palestine are a different performance space to um, the Lincoln Center. So also the question of what we define as an appropriate space for dance and what we see as part of political space in which dance can be consumed as a political artifact is also um, an interesting question to, to ponder for me. So my final question for you today yeah. is what are you working on now, now that you've you know clearly mined <laughs> all of this fascinating um, area of dance and politics, I assume it might be a sort of connected project, but perhaps not. So I'm kind of, I'm working on two projects at the same time. Um, one is, um, I don't want to say continuation because it's not. I mean, one of the kind of weird things about finishing a book, as you know, is that you finish it and then the world moves on and then you think, <laughs> oh God, there were so many things I would like to add. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I obviously I finished the book before Brexit here and before Trump over at your side of the Atlantic and before Putin became who he is and before things escalated even further in my own little sort of fascist homeland, as I like to refer to it fondly. Um, so I'm trying to reconsider global divisions and how we consider. So the project broadly looks at the relationship between dance and fragility what we perceive as fragile states and what we perceive as non-fragile states, both within the individual and in countries more broadly. So that's one project that I'm sort of um, taking on basically from the first book and sort of thinking of a lot of the divisions that I was working through that I think are not applicable anymore um, with the world being as it is. A different project I'm working on has been sort of bringing together radical Jewish women throughout history who I think 
often are marginalized in Jewish studies and in political theory and don't often get the um, attention they deserve. Again, the question of omittance here is very central for me. So women like Elena Marx, the daughter of, who I refuse to call the daughter of, but she was the daughter of, but much more interesting than that, um, inspired by a really great new biography of her by Rachel Holmes that kind of changed my life, I have to say. Um, Rosa Luxemburg, who's always been there for me as an activist, as a theorist, and then kind of doesn't appear at all in my own education and in my teaching. And then I kind of wondered why it is that she's not there. Um, and other really interesting radical women who I'm sort of looking in to trace and to bring to the forefront into a conversation really with us and together. Well, I, so, I don't um, think that Emma Goldman is absent, but is she one of the ones on your list? She will make an appearance. Yes. Okay. Um, so, yeah. I, I always like Red Emma, so. <laughs> yeah, and on, anyway, she said she was one of the best misquotes in history. She, she supposedly said, but not really. If I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. You know, if, if I can put my own epitaph, I want that to be it. So, you know, I, I definitely she'll be there. Okay, good. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dana Mills, for joining me today. To discuss thank you for having me. Your book, Dance and Politics, Moving Beyond Boundaries. So if somebody were sitting in the United States, can they get a hold of your book on Amazon? Yes, it's there to purchase on Amazon, any leading booksellers. And it's distributed by Oxford University Press. It was published by Manchester University Press here in the UK. Great. Thank you for joining us. And um, I look forward to speaking to you about your new projects when they're done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care.